This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, I'm Mike Campbell, artistic director and founder of Huff, the Halifax Urban Folk Festival. And this is HuffCast, a limited-run podcast showcasing the best and brightest artists coming to Huff this year. Please join me as I chat with artists performing this year's 10th anniversary edition. Our special guest today is singer-songwriter with over 20 albums to his credit and 30-plus years in the business. He's beloved around the world, but I believe nowhere as much as Halifax because his influence is all over records by bands synonymous with the Halifax scene in the mid-90s. Here's my chat with the king of power pop himself, Matthew Sweet. Hello. Matthew? Yes? It's Mike Campbell. Hey, Mike. How's it going? It's going okay today. I've uh, I've been t- working on trying to get you to Halifax for a number of years, and um, uh, Frank Riley was always like, nah, probably not going to happen. And this year, <laughs> I've reached, this, this year I reached out again, and for some reason, I sent him a list from the High Road roster, and I always throw your name in just for laughs. And uh, this year he came back. So, well, actually, Matthew's looking for dates. So uh, I'm so happy it's going to work out. That's amazing. Well, I've, you know, had people asking, when are you going to come up here for so long, you know? And uh, so it's it's awesome that it's finally come together. It's a little bit daunting for me because I really never do stuff where I'm alone. So just even the songwriter circle um, it's just really unusual for me to be playing acoustic without, I usually have someone who plays some kind of lead and sings a little bit. Right. I'm going to be just there on my own and it'll be, uh, awesome to see the city. And, um, you know, I've read about it, but like, like we're saying, I've never been anywhere near up there. So <laughs> the closest I've been is probably, uh, maybe Montreal. Ah, well, I've been talking to a bunch of people actually about about the fact that you're coming, and I've had calls from uh, you know I had a call from a promoter friend in southwestern Ontario who's going on. I saw you getting Matthew Sweet. You know, is there any chance that he'd do a show uh, on either side of the date in southwestern Ontario? And I was like, I can't, uh, I can't help you with that. <laughs> you're gonna have to. Talk yeah, to I mean, I, it's, <laughs> I I almost could, but this this is really coming. Uh, right before I'm doing a bunch of U.S. dates. So mm. I think I have to start on the 6th. Um, so I don't know if there'd be even time to put something in between. But we do need to get back to Canada and uh, get around to some more cities. I mean, occasionally we're in uh, Vancouver when we do West Coast runs. And uh, it just for whatever reason, I guess we, it costs us a lot to do it and we must not normally get offers that kind of make it possible. Well, I think when you finally get around to it, you'll find that there's a lot of people in this country that want to see you. So judging by the response we're getting here in Halifax. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you know, I've been there and really, you know, I was on one of the, another roadside attraction. hip stuff. Yeah. Way back. And, uh, uh, we had so much fun on that, you know, we kind of really felt like we got to be in Canada for a long time on it. So, uh, I do have very fond memories, not to mention, you know, the politics 
of Canada are much better for to me. <laughs> I wish I wish I lived there, you know. Well, that's not an impossible thought. <laughs> now, you've never been to Halifax, and uh, I've been in many places in the states, but I've I've never been to Nebraska. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Well, Nebraska's pretty uh, flat. Um, it kind of has very wide sky because it's uh, mostly flat. Where I live in Omaha is a little bit hilly around where I am. So that's kind of unusual Nebraska, but Omaha is the biggest city. I grew up in Lincoln, which is about an hour away Mm -hmm. uh, to the kind of west, southwest. And uh, yeah, it was just mostly farmland. And uh, uh, but, you know, Lincoln, where I grew up was a college town. University of Nebraska is based there. Um, There's also a lot of university and very big nursing and healthcare uh, sort of uh, uh, stuff going on in Omaha as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, there is, there is a, you know, the cities are real cities and everything (laughs) is the point I'm trying to make. Um, I I was actually thinking about it when I read uh, the, uh, population of Halifax because it's not that far from Lincoln where I grew up. Mm. But I think Halifax is more of a, is a, you know, a bigger deal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in Canada, we don't have a ton of huge cities and Halifax doesn't rank as one of the biggest ones, but it is on the ocean. Yeah, yeah. And we we also have five universities in the city. uh, So it's probably got a bit of the same kind of vibe. Yeah, that's probably. So we should feel at home here. Yeah, a lot like Omaha, except for the ocean. But uh, that's, you know, it's got, I know it's beautiful up there. And like I said, I've always kind of wished I could visit. So this makes it happen. The one thing I have noticed from all the other people who played over the years, from David Lowry to Robin Hitchcock to Alejandro Escovedo and, um, uh, you know, even David Perner from Soul Asylum and folks like Dwight Twilley and folks like that, they all... Have heard wow, of, that's awesome. They've all heard of Halifax, and so they all want to find an excuse to get here. So that plays into uh, plays into uh, uh, our pitch as much as anything. Um, now, <laughs> now, you went to high school in Lincoln? Yes. And then you decided to go to university, and you took off um, for Athens, Georgia. Now, did you do that specifically because whatever it was you wanted to study was to be found there or because of the music scene that was already happening? It was really because of the music scene. Um, I did actually, while I was a senior in high school, I actually um, took some classes at University of Nebraska in like film history and Mm. film noir and uh, some poetry classes. And uh, so that was, in a way, that was almost the most engaged I ever was in college. You know, (laughs) uh, I had, I met the guys from REM uh, when they first came and played in Lincoln and they at that time only had their independent 45 on hip tone uh, records of, uh, radio for Europe and sitting still. And I bought that 45, uh, from a record store in New York through 
a magazine called New York Rocker that yeah. I would get at the local record store. And uh, through having that record, which I liked, um, I also kind of knew about Mitch Easter, who had produced it. So when I met them, you know, I was just this kid in Nebraska and not too many people there knew anything about them. And I was like, you know, tell me about Mitch Easter and <laughs> find my 45 of yours and everything. So I guess I gave some early demos of mine to Michael Stipe. And uh, a while later, uh, I got, you know, postcards from Michael and from Linda Hopper from OOK in Athens. And uh, they were, you know, encouraged me about my demos and said, you know, you should come down to Athens. And in the meantime, REM put me in touch with Mitch Easter and we were almost kind of like pen pals wow. <laughs> for a while. And he, I asked him, you know, where should I go to do original music? And he had two ideas, one of which was Boston. Um, which I guess had a pretty vibrant music scene going and, uh, and Athens. And I was really interested in Athens. I liked the groups like Pylon and the instrumental love, love tractor. And of course the B-52s um, and the music from there seemed really interesting and original, you know? Yeah. So you know, I had this excuse, like I can go there and there's music scene people that would want me to play. Or, <laughs> I mean, I was really a kid, you know? So my, I went to my parents and said, you know, I want to go to college in Athens, Georgia. And they were sort of like, what, <laughs> you know? And, uh, but my dad went down there with me and we looked at the school and, you know, Athens was beautiful and re really so different. The whole down south antebellum kind of vibe of was so different from where I grew up in Nebraska, where nothing's really as old as uh, down down south there. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it was, you know, a really exotic to me when I moved there. And I went to school for about a year, taking just kind of like core classes. I got into my second year, but then I got a, uh, a development deal with Columbia Records and I moved to New York. So I didn't stay in school too long. And I, you know, was just my attention was on music. Well, that makes, well, <laughs> I think everybody's happy that's what happened. <laughs> I was talking to Alejandro Escovedo usually, uh, earlier this afternoon. And uh, I just asked if he knew you, and he said, yeah, I think so, you know, say hi to him from me. Uh, I'm trying to remember. So he tells me that he thinks he might have met you when you were playing in OOK. Wow. Uh, with, uh, with Michael Stipe's sister in uh -huh. Chapel Hill. He was playing in the True Believers at the time. Wow. <laughs> I feel like I've met Alejandro since over the years since then i don't doubt that he's right kind of remembering that um we we also have like a people in common there uh, this guy jason victor who plays lead guitar with me a lot the last uh two or three years has played with alejandro i think quite a bit so we have kind of that connection as well Mm. Well, but we don't know each other real well. I, I don't know his music super well, but I 
have only positive thoughts of him, you know? Yeah, I mean, I very well, I well, well know who he is, you know? Yeah, he's a cat, that one. I, I 100% <laughs> have to say. Um, Are you talking like a jazz cat? Or, no, he's... You know he, what I mean? Like that. Yeah, I, well, he's got that vibe to him, you know? He's not a big guy. Like a kind of hip... Very. He's the... Uh, He's the best dressed guy in rock and roll, one hundred percent. Like when, I, when he was that's here, gonna he, kill me. When he was here, when he was here years ago, I was picking him up at the airport. And like very easy to spot. I'd get ah, that's the rock star right there. That's the guy. <laughs> and afterwards, we hung out a fair amount. And I know that you worked in like music stores. Al's thing was that uh, he worked in record stores. Ah. So, and I worked in record stores for years. Uh, actually, I quit university to start working in a record store, which kind of led me on the path that I went down in my life. Yeah, sure. But uh, you know, after his show last time, everybody came back to my house, and I had a bunch of uh, record reps, uh, got local reps for the major labels here in Halifax, and everybody just sat on the couch, and they just talked record store stories, like the covers of specific albums and liner notes and label copy and everything and what and that amazing. experience was like. Yeah. Well, and you I know. Think, well, if you were working in a music store, it must have been the same kind of geeky, you know, fraternity. A little bit. Yeah. Um, it, it was. Uh, I learned, you know, a lot of good basic stuff. I tuned guitars for kind of the whole store. So I got good at tuning and restringing things. <laughs> um, we had a great time. You know, my boss, I had worked at a place called Deep Music and my boss was fantastic. Um, uh, the guy who uh, was the uh, tech guy who did repairs and things was amazing. And I, you know, they were really good friends to my, to me at the time. And I was, you know, this is when I probably first was able to drive, so around 16 or so. Um, but, you know, what I was going to say is we must like that it seems like a really positive time for vinyl again. Mm. Um, we've been, you know, putting out vinyl all the time the last handful of years um, and, uh, you know, doing lots of in-stores at record stores where people actually buy vinyl and come and, you know, we do little performances sometimes and, uh, you know, people, you know, a lot of people come and they, you know, know about uh, the records that are coming out and stuff. So it seems like there's a little bit of that has kind of uh, come into its own little industry. I know it's not the biggest thing ever, but um, vinyl continues to survive. And, you know, my, real memories from being a kid and buying records is vinyl, you know? So I oh, yeah. do hold, hold record stores in a very high regard. Also my drummer uh, friend who's played with me uh, most of the time over the years, Rick Mink um, uh, is, you know, a serious record collector guy. And he worked um, up until very recently in uh, Los Angeles or in studio city at a place called Freak Beat there. So that, that sort of record store uh, thing is still really in my life. 
I love record stores. I still do. I don't go into them that much these days, but we've got a really good one here in town, Taz Records. We should probably think about doing an Insta. Are you going to bring any vinyl with you? Are you going to bring any merch with you or ship some uh, to us? Gosh, I don't really think so. Um, I probably should. <laughs> I guess I don't know. Uh, they, my office will sort of go, you're bringing it or not. I mean, my only concern is I, I have to bring an acoustic and an electric. And um, I just, you know, mostly if I'm doing a one-off where it's not the whole band, I wouldn't bring merch but hmm it's a good question i really it hadn't occurred to me yet well we can talk to uh we can talk about that at, uh you know over the emails with the with the with the people that we need with to the talk office, to about yeah. The, yeah with the office yeah because i think i could make a pretty good case for bringing some everybody in the everybody in the studio here is shaking their heads yes that's a good idea <laughs> <laughs> i'll try i'll try and bring some stuff let's just say it yeah. Well, uh, the vinyl thing, you know, I've got some uh, got some very good friends from here who are in a band, I think, that, uh, you know, probably took a, quite a few pointers from me, a band called Sloan. Uh, oh, my God, Sloan. Oh, yeah. And they, I know those guys. I mean, I haven't <laughs> seen them in a super long time, but we did uh, more than a couple of shows together back in the day. And we all thought they were great, you know. Yeah, they're a, they're a super good band that's continuing to do great stuff. But they've completely they've completely embraced the vinyl thing, right? Because their albums, much like yours, you know, are starting to come up on significant anniversaries like twentieth, twenty fifth, or even thirtieth anniversary stuff. So yeah, they're releasing, yeah. you know, double vinyl records and you know demos that go with it and all the associated related stuff. And I think that's where you know that's where the majority of their merch sales are. And they were always yeah. vinyl junkies too. Jay Smirg- Jay Ferguson from Sloan was a record record store rat as well. <laughs> so I think you know I think that well we might as well get into that part of it you know because I was uh, I moved here from Toronto. I worked for Much Music, uh, our Canadian version of MTV, for a number of years, and I moved out to sure. Health. No, no, I know. Yeah, I know much. I did quite a bit of stuff there. At, yeah. Um, one point, yeah. Yeah, we used to, well, I used to play play Matthew Sweet videos a fair amount. And then I moved out to Halifax uh, in the early 90s to start a show called Much East, which was all about the independent music scene in Atlantic Canada. Oh, and Sloan at the time, so great. And Sloan at the time hadn't, had only released the Smeared EP. So I got here just as those wow. guys were starting to do stuff. And of course, they stayed in Halifax for a lot of like a long long time really but there's you know there was Sloan here and there was Joel Plaskett out here the uh, the bass player in your all-star band Paul Boudreaux was in a in a, a, a much beloved band here called Cool Blue Halo oh yeah um, I've heard of them yeah and they named their album Kangaroo as a bit of a big star homage <laughs> And, uh, you know, those guys, and Matt Mays as well, who's playing lead guitar in your band, and Matt's a pretty big deal in this country. Uh, you know, he sells out large venues on his own. Wow. Uh, but when I mentioned but when I mentioned that, uh, I can't wait to show you the text he sent me, because I, uh, I just texted him and said, hey, man, if I book Matthew Sweet, and it's just all caps with, you know, fuck, I don't believe that. You're kidding me, all that shit. Oh, gosh. Uh, and he was also, he also played lead guitar in our uh, all-star band for Norman Blake, 
Oh, that's great. Teenage yeah. Band club. Then Norman yeah. lives in so Canada, of, right? He lives in Kitchener. Yeah, that's yeah, outside thinking. of Toronto. Yeah, yeah. What a sweetheart. Very nice guy. But all of this stuff is in the exact same sonic rock and roll wheelhouse. And, you know, I mean, listening to you, it's it's quite obvious to me, you know, that there would be the love of Big Star and there would be the love of John Lennon and, yeah. and so many other artists that, that I was reading about that you've had, you've crossed paths with in the past. And they're all, I'm huge fans of all of them. You know, like John Hyatt, we just had his daughter Lily play Huff last year. Oh, that's he's spectacular. Great. He's like, I love John Hyatt. Lloyd Cole, we've had him here for Huff as well. Oh, that's I've fantastic. I've seen videos playing bass and band with him. Uh, and another guy that I see that you co-wrote something with, and I did not realize this, but Jules Shear. Oh, Jules and I were such good friends. And I mean, I still regard him as a good friend, but we just haven't been in touch, you know, over all the years. But when I first moved to New York City, when I got my development deal and moved from Athens to New York uh, with uh, for Columbia, um, my A&R guy, Steve Robotsky, introduced me to Jules Shear. And Jules was like, you know, the first person I'd known who... Uh, you know, had such a history making records and stuff. And he was really like a, I hesitate to call him a big brother because we were just friends, you know, fast friends mm -hmm. from early on when we met each other. And uh, I have just very high respect for Jules. Well, I was trying to find him to get him up here, but I've not been able to find him at all. I think I, I think that's, I said, that's weird, huh? Yeah, you know, it's some some people. We use, can find him, I'll bet. Well, let's you let's, know, let's work know, on that. I, I know we. I'm telling you, I know that my office write them about it because yeah, um, not not that long ago, uh, Fred Armisen uh, got a hold of me because he was looking for a song for one of the documentary now episodes. Right. Uh, there's one, there's one that's kind of, I think they're kind of sort of modeled off like the talking heads. And, uh, he was looking for a song that in the episode, the, uh, the girl bass player from the band has her sort of own hit. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, he ended up using this song, a single off my first record on Columbia called uh save time for me and maya rudolph ah. you know sings it in the episode and everything and i think we had somebody had to find contact for jules because jules and i wrote the song together right well that would i be... i haven't talked to him in a while <laughs> well he was one of my heroes i love jules and the polar bears he used to sell those records in my store and his solo stuff is spectacular yeah, he's he's a great guy and a great artist. Like, really love that guy. Uh, well, I also discovered, and this I should have known, uh, uh, is that you played guitar and sang on Kim Stockwood, She's Not in Love, for a Bonavista record. And Kim, uh, Kim is managed by uh, a friend of mine I used to, to co-manage Joel Plaskett with, and she was in a band called Shea at one point with our other 
okay. festival headliner, Davnit Doyle. So it says he played guitar and sang on that track. And I was like, man, I had no idea. And Kim's from Newfoundland. Wow. <laughs> who, was the pro- who was the producer? I'm not sure. There's just the one entry yeah. on, like, uh, and and Kim will probably know. I haven't talked to her in a while, but that was like, Yeah, really? she'll that, know. That's amazing. Because I don't, I, I don't have clear memory of this, so I'm really curious to... Well, you've done a lot of that refreshed. stuff, you know, so, uh, and, and you know, I'm interested in the co-writing thing, too, um, uh, because you seem to be somebody who's actually, you know, interested in doing some of that stuff. I know plenty of people that aren't or can't or, you know, for whatever reason, they're not into it. It's hard, and I kind of feel like, uh, and especially earlier on in my career, that I was just bad at it. I think that... Mm. My problem is I'm too skittish and shy in a situation where I'm co-writing that it's hard for me to like push an idea of my own. Mm -hmm. So I would kind of be just helping with somebody else's idea most (laughs) of the time. Um, But, uh, but uh, I got, you know, more comfortable with doing it, I guess, sort of over the years and the, Thorns experience when we made the Thorns record, you know, it was really like we worked on all the songs together. So uh, I probably got even more comfortable with it then. But uh, it was something, you know, Columbia really wanted me to do when I first moved to New York. And, you know, Jules Shear was the first person I ever wrote with um, any to any extent. Although, I guess... I wrote a little bit with Michael Stipe, just a couple songs uh, when I lived in Athens for a thing um, that was called the community trolls. Um, <laughs> but Jules was really, uh, you know, the first big songwriter guy, you know, I sort of uh, met and got to know really well. And so he kind of was a, super pro at writing with people. So he at least made the experience not so scary, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've got lots of friends who are sort of in the same boat. I've had it explained to me, you know, I mean, it's a, a lot of people here make the trip to Nashville where the publishers are setting them up with, you know, writing sessions two in the morning, two in the afternoon or something. And they describe walking into a, into a nondescript room and meeting somebody for the first time and just looking at them. And it's like, well, have you got any ideas? Do you have any ideas? I mean, you know, be weird. I wish I had that ability just because for making money, it would be great. But I, I just never found, um, I, you know, that it was very commercial having me writing with other people, you know? Mm. Um, so I don't know. I've mostly, think of myself as doing it alone, you know? Yeah. Um, you lived in L.A. for a number of years. Is that how, um, you know, you can't help but notice, well, now that you mentioned that you went to school and you were taking film studies and so, such, I mean, that kind of marble drops there, but you're all over the place in, you know, cool films from, you know, Austin Powers stuff, and I was particularly interested in reading about uh, your piece of the Big Eyes film, Oh yeah, uh, yeah. And I had no clue that you connected that you collected artwork that that in some way at least tangentially helped that project get off the ground. 
Yeah. Well, um, you know, I, uh, my wife and I both, you know, really like going to flea markets and stuff. And, um, I guess around the time we moved to Los Angeles would be in 1993. So we spent, uh, about 20 years. We lived there <laughs> and, uh, uh, we, I would see these prints by like Keen and some other artists. There's one called Mayo that does Harlequin Girls that I actually used on my um, last uh, two of my most recent records, Tomorrow Forever and Tomorrow's Daughter. Mm. I used a bunch of those paintings. Um, but at the time, I'd only ever seen these prints at flea markets. And I kind of got it in my mind, like, where's the original art, you know, the the oil paintings that these people did, you know, originally like that made these, you know, they made hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of prints, you know, and then that time from kind of 1960 to 1966 or so, <laughs> maybe the late fifties. And, uh, we kind of learned about Keen and it was, they were an interesting story because Walter, you know, pretended that he was the main artist, right. but Margaret was painting for both of them, you know, and we had to kind of tease apart, you know, at the time without the internet, you know, it's hard to imagine it, but it wasn't even easy to find out about how she eventually won all the, uh, rights to the paintings in a court in Hawaii in mm-hmm. 1985. It was a great and movie. we were, you know, we, we found both, uh, uh, both Margaret who still you know, had a, a gallery going in, in San Francisco and we ferreted out Walter and even I met him and bought a small painting from him that was, a, was really a painting of hers from 1965. And he had, redated it um to 1980 and uh i was so driven crazy by it because we found these photographs from a guy who got some stuff from a defaulted storage space of walters and they were from 1965 in the hong kong hilton they were developed and in one of these photos it was taken inside their house in Woodside, I believe, California, um, was this little painting he sold me. And so I would try to look at it with a loop and see like, what is the date? You know, why is this painting Mm -hmm. dated 1985? And eventually one night I took my thumbnail and I just lightly scraped on the eight and it came off and it was 1965. And you know, that was when we really, when we really knew like, wow, he, he he didn't paint at all, but not only that, he never represented anything else as his own from someone else. You know what I mean? Yeah. Only her paintings were good enough for him to say they were his, you know, <laughs> he was like connected to the original stuff. So anyhow, we kind of collected a lot of stuff on them and, you know, a few paintings. We didn't have a massive amount, um, and uh, I ended up hooking up with, uh, well, there were a couple connections to the movie. The first is that I was I became friends with, through another friend, a guy named Larry Karaszewski, 
who's one of the writers of Big Eyes. And when I met him, he had written the movie uh, Ed Wood for Tim Burton. Right. And uh, I had mentioned that I liked it in some interview somewhere. And so, you know, we connected. He had written the movie. And uh, I first, I think, went to him in the late 90s and said, there's this amazing story, these two people. I think it might have the dynamic where it could be an interesting movie. Um, And he actually turned me on to a, a different movie from the, I want to say 30s or 40s that was about a similar thing where the artist that was really doing the work wasn't the one getting the credit for it. Mm. <laughs> but other than that, I didn't think he had too much interest in it. And then uh, in our collecting of other artists from that genre and that time frame, there was a guy named Igor Padaha, uh who did these sort of little fashion girls um, they're really exotic and cool looking. And uh, it turned out that Tim's longtime girlfriend, Tim Burton's uh, uh, Lisa Marie, got into Igor. And she heard that we had a bunch of Igor paintings. Igor was very prolific. Mm. And so we would find, you know, 10 of them at some old art dealer that had them in the back. And they'd each be, you know, 35 bucks or something. And we ended up, you know, at some point we had 80 or 90 (laughs) of his paintings. And then they became, you know, comparatively valuable, you know, at least, you know, several hundred dollars or a really big, great one might be, you know, $800 or something. So we kind of slowly sold them over the years. But um, Lisa Marie was a big Igor fan and she found out we had a bunch and came over just to look at our art collection. And so she brought Tim, you know, one night and we kind of showed them all the other, all the different artists. And it was finally like, you know, someone who could appreciate what we liked about the art, you know? Uh And by that point, they already knew Margaret Keene. She had done some portraits, I think of, of Lisa Marie and her dog. Um, And so we spent sort of an evening with Tim and, and Lisa and uh, kind of showed them about all our artists. And we did sort of a big presentation on Keen. Um, and he was really interested in it. And he said, you know, have you brought up this as a movie to Larry? And I said, yeah, I actually did, but he didn't, it didn't really, you know, pan out to him having interest in it. And it was kind of left at that. And, uh, you know, I visited Tim. Uh, he was making the Planet of the Apes movie at the time. So, you know, we got to go to the set because, you know, I confronted him when he visited my house. Like, can we can we visit the set? So I didn't see him, you know, for many years afterwards. And then um, in the early 2000s, uh, Scott, uh, Larry and his partner, Scott, decided they were interested in writing a Keen script and they kind of came over and we told them everything we knew about them. And they wrote this, they got the rights and wrote this script. And uh, it took a really long time for them to get it made. They wanted to direct it themselves and they would sort of get funding set up around it. At one point it was supposed to be, uh, 
uh, why am I blanking her name? Uh, Goldie Hawn's daughter. Uh, oh, Kate Hudson. Yeah, Kate Hudson. She's, I don't know why I was facing her name. And uh, she came over at one point and we looked at all the stuff and showed her paintings and she was going to play Margaret. And uh, they were um, had some ideas about Walter that, you know, we thought were great. But then that funding fell apart. And then at one point it was coming back together with Reese Witherspoon wanting to play Margaret. <laughs> and the funny thing was all along, we would say to them, the perfect person to play Margaret would be uh, Amy Adams, because she has the kind of super shyness, um, mm. the ability to sort of portray that, which was a thing about Margaret that, you know, was critical to her being able to be kind of under Walter's thumb, you know, back in the time. So anyway, um, they wrote this movie and it took 10 years, but finally all of a sudden Tim was going to direct it. Um, in two seconds, he got, uh, Christoph Waltz and Amy Adams for it. And they were going into production, you know, like within two or three months after, it all came together wow. and it was right around the time we were actually going to leave Los Angeles, but they shot it in Vancouver. Mm. So we were able to go to Vancouver and watch some of the filming and see Tim. And he was so excited about it. So for us, it was a real dream come true to be at all kind of associated with it. We weren't going to buy the rights to make the movie or write a script but we kind of thought it would be a great idea. And so it was fun to see the movie um, finally come to uh, fruition. Well, that's awesome. But it's also, you know, an interesting encapsulation of what the studio system in the United States, well, the studio system in any country is like and how difficult it is to get things done. So I... Yeah, and this was, you know, as the movie industry changed in a way like the record industry changed exactly. to be more independent kind of, you know, and he had to get together. It's like now on movies or in recent uh, years, you see there's just a million different production companies that, that get together to fund a film, you know, mm -hmm. um, and it's just kind of done a little, in a little more of a crowdsourced kind of way, you know. Yeah. And you've been in the music business long enough. You've been in pretty much in every, in every possible way. So you're assigned to major labels, you dealt with them, you dealt with the way that the industry worked in those days. You know, you, they, you sign a contract, they give you a budget, they pay for your, they give you an advance to do the record, you deliver the record, they take care of sales and distribution, you tour to support it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then, yeah, as, yeah. And then as the music industry completely and totally gets turned on its head, now you're sort of in charge of your own stuff and you do it whenever you feel like doing it or whenever you can consider the fact that you've got enough material to do it. You can, anybody can, if they've got the the smarts and some of the gear, you can make, yeah, a, you can make a record for almost nothing. Yeah, and, the you know, that makes it where everybody can be an artist, you know. Um, it's a great kind of equalizer how the technology to be able to do it has come into our lives. I mean, it's funny because I'm sure you could find interviews I did. I don't know if you could find them, but I did interviews um, 
you know, in the mid eighties. And I would say, you know, someday there's going to be this little box that does everything, you know, mm-hmm. and in, in the way that's what, you know, the computer became for us. And once Pro Tools got good enough that it sounded good, um, you know, it was just an incredible uh, weapon to have to be able to make records for next to nothing. Um, when, you know, at one time, you know, when I was making records with Brendan O'Brien, mm. when we made 100% fun, you know, we would spend, you know, $100,000, $150,000. Yeah. You know, he would get, he would get 60 or something, you know. Right. It was just like the amount of money that was spent, you know, kind of just added to the pressure of, you know, them wanting you to give them something that they could make big, you know. And so that there was that pressure, which in some ways might have yielded things kind of. But as far as being an artist and being free, you know, now it's better. You know, now it's like, I I feel like there's not any pressure, really. I just kind of do my thing. I can think of myself like I was a painter or something. It's something I can do pretty much alone if I want to and, you know, kind of do my art. Mm. Well, you're still doing it after all these years, which is a good thing. And, uh, you know, you've utilized Kickstarter and some other stuff that, you know, most of a lot of artists use these days. Uh, and I think to great effect, I have lots of friends who make records based on, you know, what they can raise from Kickstarter campaigns. So it's a beautiful thing. Sure. Yeah. You know, yeah. Trying to figure out how you reach the masses with it. But then again, radio's onto something completely different. There is no MTV anymore. You know, you either yeah. gotta, you either have to get out there and tour and play it live if you know that's a burning yeah. desire for you. Uh, or well, the touring is really touring is really more the way we make money yeah. now than the records themselves. And keeping fresh and making records kind of gives us, you know, a little extra reason to be touring. You know, each time, so mm. it works really nicely. Um, you know, it's. I knock on wood, you know, my health and all those things stay good because I really rely on touring. Um, but, uh, uh, it's a great thing in that you're always sort of engaged with the people that really care these days. Mm. Like if someone from my era is going out and playing shows, you know, the people that come are all like diehard. There's yep. not like this kind of random thing like back in the day when I was on MTV and half the people in the club might not really know too much about it, you know. Um, now it's just such a special experience for me seeing the people that really care about it. Um, that's become, you know, a really important part of everything in this era. Mm. Well, have you, do you, I shouldn't say have you ever, but, uh, you know, one of the things that we insist on when I'm booking artists for this festival is that everybody buys into this, you know, it's impossible to tour out here. You can't make money. You know, nobody comes east of Montreal. It's just too much of a pain in the ass. There's not enough decent gigs between wherever and Halifax for it to make economic sense to anybody. So the... Um, 
the only way for me to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish, which is to get songwriters that I love here, but I'm also a rock guy, you know, singer-songwriters, that's all fun and fine and excellent in its own right. But I like to see a rock show, so... You know, the idea of getting artists who will come here and trust us to put together a group of musicians who will be rehearsed and who will uh, treat the material with respect and who will be thrilled and happy to be on the same stage as somebody that they look up to uh, is a big part of it. Uh, and if people aren't willing to do that, then I just don't book them. Um, is, there yeah. any, is there any trepidation on your, on your part um, about walking you know, into that situation? My only trepidation in that situation, and, and I have done it before, it's mm -hmm. not very usual. Um, the most recent thing I can think of, I did a Carnegie Hall uh, where I performed one song on a Led Zeppelin tribute <laughs> night, and they they had a you know the, the backing band. Right. Most people used uh, the band to kind of do it. My only trepidation is just if I'll be okay <laughs> like you know I'm sure that would be great you know I'm not not really worried about it it's kind of exciting in a way because there's that there's a sort of unknown uh factor that <laughs> well, I think will make it make it a little on edge you know? well for the first time ever we're doing two nights with a headliner and that's you so um wow so you're gonna have uh you know, you'll have two shows with the band, so you'll at least have one under your belt by the time the second one comes we'll be, along. Yeah, we'll be. Oh, you'll be seasoned pros by, by then. Night. <laughs> yeah, just so you know, I mean, the, the first show sold out in fifteen minutes. The second show sold out in that less than an hour. That is unbelievable. Oh yeah, oh yeah. How how big is it's the a tiny room? <laughs> it's a tiny room. Oh well, that's it's, good. It's a tiny room, but um, it's a uh, it's. Well, it's my venue. It's a, it's a place called the Carlton. So it's been open for about 12 years. We've won Music Nova Scotia, Provincial Music Association's Venue of the Year Award. Every year we've been open. We've oh, won, that's great. We've, that's won the, great. we've won the East Coast Music Award for Atlantic Canada as Venue of the Year five times, I think. And 2017, we won Best Small Venue in Canada. So it's a good room. Wow, that's so great. Well, I like playing small places, so that just makes me happy that it's not some big tent or something. Nah, it'll be. You'll like it. Everybody really loves. Uh, everybody really loves doing it. Before I let you go, I do have to ask you about um, uh, the Susanna Hoffs projects with Under the Covers, and uh, sure, I'll tell you why. I mean, from a selfish point of view. Um, I make playlists at home and stuff, and I have you know vast playlists with thousands and thousands of songs. But I get tired wow. of them, and and uh, you know people who visit my house—it's a very social place—are probably tired of them too. So I just sent a tip out of my uh, Carlton newsletter last week, saying you know if you're having a summertime bash or something, and you haven't got your shit together to get a decent playlist put together, you might just want to <laughs> dial up all these under the covers albums and just stream them front to front to back, all three of them in a row. And I found myself doing that at a couple of events this summer already. And I mean, I've heard the records, but listening to them all of a piece, you know, and, mm -hmm. I, and I've got people with me who are also music fans, like big music fans, like I am, and somebody go like, 
is that Todd Rundgren's Couldn't I Just Tell You? What the fuck? <laughs> That's not Todd <laughs> Rundgren. Yeah. What's that? And, uh, you know, the choice of tunes is uh, in virtually every single case on every single record is like right up my alley. You know, if I hear somebody doing Bad oh, Finger cool. or somebody like Bad Finger kills me and Todd Rundgren kills me, you know, just like a Jewel Shear track or something. Uh, I'm assuming yeah, yeah. that between you two, uh, between um, the, the two of you that you've handpicked these songs, these are songs that you appreciate, because a lot of them weren't big hits. Some of them were, but a lot of them yeah. definitely weren't. Yeah, well, we um, we did, you know, it was very much for us just a thing as music fans, you know, that we did. And so in the beginning, we had lists. Like when we made the first one of them, we each, brought a list and it was like they had so many of the same <laughs> songs on them and you know in the case of some of the more well-known songs a, a lot of the time it would be while we were recording all these other things we knew we wanted to record one or the other of us would think of a thing like what if we tried to do you know x song even though you know it's something uh more famous the, the challenge of kind of us singing it or just the fun of getting to recreate and sing it you know was uh was an inspiration for us you know uh uh we really approached those records where we tried to preserve what was cool about the record itself from the time so they're really quite close in a way to the original backing tracks of all those songs mm -hmm. but we sound so specifically like ourselves that it brings it away from seeming like a to an, an exact copy, you know? Right. So we kind of tried to save that, that magic about the song so that we could sort of inhabit it, you know? Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's a great approach because they are that true to the original, to the originals that it usually takes people a little bit of time, right? When the marble drops, it's like, yeah, wait a second. Well, and I suppose it might, I mean, you had Steve Howe play on Roundabout, didn't you? Uh, on uh, All Good People. Or All Good People, sorry, not Roundabout. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Just amazing <laughs> well, that we got a, him. You that's know. a That was like, right you know, the, the power of the internet. You know, I found <laughs> his, his fan club and the guy from his fan club put me in touch with someone who, you know, really knew him and then eventually i talked to him on the phone and we did it and it was so so much fun that was my fifth grade self i guess how old would are you then i don't know 11 or 12 when i first started buying records you know the kids a couple of years older than me were really into the prog rock you know oh, the, yeah. uh aor radio <laughs> um that that rock radio um that played you know album tracks mm -hmm. Um, was really big at that time. And I started on electric bass guitar. So right. those Yes records with the bass so prominent was a lot of my first musical training was learning those bass lines by ear off of Yes records. And they were complex enough and sort of interesting enough melodically that I think it was a real good training for me, learning that ear training kind of with them. Wow. And even though I you know, moved on to being into British new wave invasion within a couple of years. There were those first couple of years where I, I was very, uh, in love with yes. 
<laughs> I met Chris. So that, so that was a great one. I met Chris Squire one night in a club in Ottawa. He was there to see Long John Baldry. And he was a very nice man. He was a very nice man. And he's a great bass yeah. player. There was a great bass player. And it was kind of like his band, I think, yeah. you know? Yeah. He was certainly a big part of it. He's a tall fellow. Yeah, really tall. Yeah. I've taken up a fair amount of your time. I'm going to let you go. But before that, I just wanted to see if um, you knew that there's an area just not far from uh, Halifax here, uh, basically known as the land of Evangeline. Wow. What, what, why is it called that? Uh, long player, long player, long fellow, basically, this you know, epic poem Evangeline was based here in Nova Scotia. They, ah. kicked, they kicked the Acadians out. Um, right. So that's in Grand Pre, uh, just in the Annapolis Valley. It's about a 45-minute drive from here. Wow. <laughs> the land of Evangeline. There you go, man. That's where you're I, headed. You know, I, I took it. I took Evangeline from a comic book called Evangeline. Mm about this uh, superhero girl that fought in the name of Christ, but mm -hmm. it was like super violent and kind of sexy. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was just this really weird combination, you know? And I just was sort of got a kick out of it. I was sort of uh, going to a comic book store a lot at that time where I lived in New Jersey. And, uh, so I, you know, I used the name. It was kind of new to me, you know, at the time. And, uh, but uh, I see it around quite a bit. I think there have been times when a lot of girls were getting named Evangeline over the last kind of 20 years. So it's not, it's not so uh, mysterious uh, <laughs> now, I don't think, you know. Well, it's got a great ring to it for anybody from around here. That's for sure. And um, oh, I bet, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe you'll have time to take you out there. Just take a peek at it. You never know. Okay, I'm happy. I'm happy to go. Oh, good, good. Well, um, it's like eighty plus degrees Fahrenheit here right now. I think uh, you know. I don't think it's. Some people ask me if they should bring jackets and shit. Uh, yeah, I was you wondering kind of how warm it gets there. And, <laughs> yeah, okay. It's pretty standard. But the whole city's pumped for That's good to know, actually. Thanks for telling me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. I would hate for you to show up with skis. Uh, yeah, well, thanks very much for your time, Matthew. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And uh, the whole city is is super pumped for you to, for you to be here in town. Uh, well, it's, it's my pleasure, and I'm so, so flattered by um, any excitement about it. I'm excited too, so we'll have a great time. All right, I'll see you soon. Thank you, sir. Okay, you take care. That's our show for today. Thanks to Matthew Sweet for taking the time to join us. Also, thanks to Joel Plaskett for the use of our theme music, Village Sound, and to you, the music fan, for giving it a listen. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 